So, you know, most of us, when we run, we've got the, in, we, we run with the intent of, of training for a, a race in the future, um, three, four, six, nine, 12 months away. We're, we've got the intent to try to do a certain number of miles in a certain time or a certain workout. We've got the intent to forget about problems in our life. Um, we've got the intent to transform the way we look. Hmm. And so, you know, running will give you all of those things. But I never realized that running, if you want it to, will give you the experience of transformation. It will allow you and actually do the work for you to totally change your life, your sensitivities to the world, uh, what you understand about yourself and your purpose in life. That comes through running. That's Sanjay Wall, runner, filmmaker, human rights activist, and micro and neurobiologist joining us today on the Running Anthropologist podcast. And I'm Mark Lane Holbert, your host for the podcast today with Sanjay Rawal in his film, 3100 Run and Become, which takes us to several traditional cultures, how they view running, what we can learn from them, and leading up to the 3100-mile self-transcendence endurance race. As a reminder, you can always connect with us on runninganthropologist.com or at runninganthropologist on Instagram or Facebook. We also have a few of our own meditations posted on Insight Timer. Insight Timer is the world's biggest free meditation app. There's something for just about everyone from every tradition, including a few running meditations. If you search for Running Anthropologist, you'll find a couple of ours. In the meantime, let's get started. And welcome to the podcast. This is really an honor for you to be on the podcast, particularly with your insight into um, running as meditation and prayer and all of the work that you've done over the past few years. Uh, really excited to learn about your filmmaking and also your personal experiences. Well, Mark, it's, it's awesome to be on your show and to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Sanjay. Well, let's let's dive right in. So, I, <laughs> you know, no greater topic than than this. The, you know, running for most of us this um, essential thing in our lives um, that are runners, and digging into the history of it. Um, I've heard you say before that, you know, running is and movement have been really part of the history of most societies and cultures for ten thousand years or more. Um, could you um, maybe explain that a little bit? Well, yeah. So, you know, there, there's a theory from evolutionary biologists, like, like you know, you're, you're, you're an expert in this stuff, that um, the only advantage that the early human beings had in the place where people believe we first originated, and that's in, in, in kind of southern central Africa, um, that our only advantage on those savannas uh, which are teeming with gigantic beasts from lions to, to elephants and giraffe and hyenas and many things that could that could kill us. We we were since since we were one of the only bipedal animals and actually the only animal that could move long distances on two feet. We had we had one one main kind of physiological advantage that our breathing was decoupled from our gait. And you know mm. if you can imagine um, a, a horse running when. When the legs are contracted, you know the the lungs are forced to expel air out. When when the horse is in full stride, reaching out, kicking back, the the lungs suck in air, and that makes them you know aerobically deficient. Hmm. They you know they 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 can they have a lot of power, but they can't take in enough oxygen to be able to run at full strength for a long time. Interesting. At the same, at the same time. We were also the only animal that was able to carry water for long distances. So just on the surface, the cultural surface, survival, evolutionary biology surface, we developed these things that are now called persistence hunts, where we would chase this much longer, much stronger game um, that we couldn't catch You know, uh, if, if, the, if the, the playing field was, was level. 
would push them away from watering holes. You know, you'd scare a, you'd scare a, a large uh, African elk. It would run 40 miles an hour and probably gain two or three miles on you. And you would use your ingenuity and track it through the, the desert and through the savanna, uh, scare it again, but purposely scaring it further and further away from the watering holes that you knew. Hmm. And finally, after 24, 36, 48 hours, uh, the beast was so dehydrated that you could approach it with your primitive weaponry and kill it without any fear of harm to yourself. Now, that that's considered like the, the way that human beings carved out a place in, in the, the, the earth or in, in the world, so to speak. We spent time for the movie I made, 3100 Run and Become, which is now in the U.S. at least available all over the place online. Um, we spent time with the Kalahari Bushmen, who aren't known to be the, the first tribe that ever existed, but they've had an unbroken existence of 125,000 years. And geneticists and evolutionary biologists point to them as the only kind of... Um, like I hate using the word prehistoric because they're still around, but the, the only kind of ancient um, species or ancient ancient populations whose DNA markers are in every single human being on Earth, meaning they were, you know, the, the ones that moved out of Africa, interbred with other species of, of um, Homo uh, erectus, et cetera, to form now what we call Homo sapiens. Um, when we spent time with them in, in, in the Kalahari Desert and tried to explain this Western um, perspective on their own existence, they said that's, that's nonsense. They said that our advantage in the savannah was our ability to achieve higher levels of consciousness than mm. the animals around us. And that was specifically done through prayer and an understanding of the power of ancestors, the power of the spirits, the power of the other worlds. And they said that, yes, there's some ingenuity, yes, there's some evolutionary advantages, but they gain strength through understanding how to connect to the earth and to the powers of Mother Earth through their breath and to pray to Mother Earth to allow them to take one of her creatures. So it was an act not of like blind, you know, physiology, sure. nor, was it, nor was it an act of, of superstition. Uh, they understood that the process to gaining strength was through uh, other parts of our being than our bodies. Uh, that's such an amazing vision into and just being able to hear that from them into our, our ancestors, at least as, as told by our biology. Um, and fast forwarding to today, you know, we can see throughout all the film and all the people that you talk to that, that um, the people who are really good at endurance running see running as a, a type of devotion, a type of healing, an integral part of themselves that for many leads to, in, in your film at least, leads to a type of in, enlightenment or enlightened view of, of themselves and how they interact with the world. Um, would that be a good way to kind of describe the film in a nutshell uh, as kind of a prayer, meditation, enlightenment view of running? I, I, I think so, and I, I, I would I would adjust that by by taking you know kind of take, taking out the, the, the word view. Um, our, our our film hopes to establish the the truth of running, hmm. um, not not just a single viewpoint or a single opinion. And by looking at the like traditional running cultures like the Kalahari Bushmen, the Navajo, and other Southwestern Native Americans. Uh, the Japanese marathon monks of the highlands outside Kyoto. You know, the, the, these are some of the only cultures that still exist that provide a link to our past and the past uses of running. If you mm -hmm. go to any indigenous community around the world, and, and the evolutionary biologist Daniel Lieberman has done a lot of, of, of research on this, yes. every single indigenous community around the world has a running tradition and that running tradition is synonymous with prayer. And so when people say now, you know, oh, I run for fitness, I run for health, I run for this and I run for that, um, that I consider a viewpoint because that's different from how we've run, you know, in the, the several hundred thousand years of our existence. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, in fact, I've, I think I've heard you say, uh, uh, perhaps in another interview or as part of a uh, previous conversation that, 
perhaps running or movement in a way could be seen as man's first religion as they interact with their surroundings, with creation, and hope to understand or transcend just their their own heads, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, and I, I'm, it's a total guest for me because I have no real background other than what I've, I've seen and observed and tried to translate in, into to film. Uh, but if, if, if you look at religion, really pri- Western religion, really prior to the last few centuries, um, and Eastern religion prior to, to, to this century, um, you know, there were s- several things that were a common part of an annual practice, and that, that one of them particularly is pilgrimages. Mm. Um, you know, people would take regular long journeys to shrines. At, at, at the same time, you know, the, those were considered to be holy experiences where, you know, quote, unquote, the journey, it's, journey was a destination. Yeah. Where you you prayed along the way, you prayed for blessings along the way, and those blessings hopefully would culminate in some sort of exalted experience once you got to the holy shrine. Now, mm. That that was a common way for people to practice religion, um, if not regularly, at least annually or or periodically. The combination of religion plus movement. I mean, it, it's it's only now that we that we kind of have taken that out of mainstream religion, maybe because it's too hard to do. Hmm. Yeah, maybe not uh, convenient in the ways that we would like it to be. Um, by, by the way, in, um, at least one of our podcast episodes of our first 20 was dedicated to pilgrimage, uh, just one pilgrimage. Um, but just, you know, just for the sake of mentioning it, uh, certainly not absent from the Christian tradition, which, um, you know, obviously is one of the major Western religions. Um, so as, as, as I move through your film, um, just amazing in the, the way that it compiles and shares information on, from three different traditional cultures and then kind of connects it to this 3,100-mile race, although the mileage really isn't that important. What everyone should know who's listening is that that's a really long way. That's like running from L.A. to New York in a summer. Um, and they're doing it, um, the people that you film and, and have the experience of, uh, going through their religious or spiritual experience, um, they're doing it in full days, you know, around one city block in New York City. So, um, (laughs) that's incredible devotion there. Um, could, could you tell us, I, I know that you personally have some experience with, the founder and kind of the re- religious origin of, of this race. Could you tell us a little bit about um, that story for you and how you got involved with the 3100? For, for sure. I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things about the race itself, if you don't mind. That um, would be great. The, 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 3100, the self-transcendence 3100-mile race is officially the, the longest certified road race or running race in the world. It has taken place every summer since 1997, you know, meaning that this last summer in 2019 was the, the 23rd edition of the race. Hmm. Uh, in order to complete the 3,100 miles in the 52-day window, participants who come from around the world, and the numbers range from anywhere from 8 to 15 uh, participants every summer, they have to average at least about 59.8 miles per day uh, around a half-mile sidewalk loop. Uh, now, number one, people go like, why the heck would I want to run, or so, run around a sidewalk? <laughs> and there are attempts of, 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 to, to go from City Hall, San Francisco, to City Hall, New York City. It's called the Transcontinental Race. But people find that it's very difficult to kind of enter into a meditative flow state when there are cars flying by you. And number two, when the logistics make it difficult to refuel, um, rehydrate, rest, go to the bathroom, you know, exactly when you need to. And in the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race, you get aid and opportunity for other things every half a mile. And so, and there's no traffic because you're just going around the high school. Hmm. Um, so it, it allows people to have a kind of an unbroken experience or opportunity for, for transformation. And to go to your question, the, the, the race was founded by an Indian spiritual teacher, a guru named Sri Chinmoy, who moved to the States from South India in the 60s, but... And he was in New York City at the heart of the running boom and became very close friends with some of the, the earliest 
driving forces from Ted Corbett, the, the founder of the Roadrunners Club and, you know, one of the, the early um, American marathoners. As an African-American, he was a, a representative of the U.S. Olympic team at the 1952 Helsinki Games. Hmm. Um, he pushed into ultra running well before anybody else did. And he was the one who found and chose the course that was used in 1976 for the New York City Marathon that went through all five boroughs. Oh, wow. Um, and they were so receptive to Sri Chinmoy's message that the, that the inner life and the outer life had to go together, that physical fitness was of paramount importance, that in 1977 and 1978, they actually had him, you know, begin the New York City Marathon um, with meditations. And hmm. an Indian guru in, in, in the garb of... of of uh, a spiritual man, like, you know, inaugurating the New York City Marathon with the meditation. Wow. So, so he was at the heart of that movement. And in the 80s, to make a short story long, sorry, in, in the 80s, he and Fred LeBeau revived the, the kind of late 19th century practice of pedestrianisms, six-day races that used to be held in Madison Square Garden indoors in New York City, uh, but were the first opportunities for athletes in the U.S. to make enough money in one event to last them their whole lifetimes, because people would bet on who would win those six-day races. And so they revived that in 1983. I mean, there were other ones going on around the world, but they wanted to revive it in New York. And that, for Sri Chinmoy, grew into a 1,000-mile race, then a 1,300-mile race, and a 2,700-mile race. And finally, in 1997, it was... Thankfully, capped at 3,100 miles. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I guess the question becomes, you know, people obviously have a draw to that, you know, being challenged physically as a means to reach out and not only test their, their physical boundaries, but also test their emotional and their mental state to a point where they transcend, you know, where they become something that they weren't before they started this journey. Um, I, I know that um, you have experience with uh, Sri Chimnoy's, um his kind of mentality towards sport and how it would bring people together and generate peace in the world. Very 70s-esque, but I hope we haven't lost it today. Um, what did that mean for you personally when, when you came to New York and you started uh, working, uh, working and following him? Well, I, I, I grew up in, in the East Bay in Northern California, and I, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, and pretty much a, 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 an intellectual and even a, a, a metaphysical paradise. I mean, anything you want to study or experience, you can in that city. Hmm. But it wasn't enough for me because the, the, the message I was hearing, and granted, this isn't a, a judgment on any path, and I by no means did an exhaustive survey, but... The message I kept hearing was that, you know, it's like your your meditation practice, if you really want to make it perfect and, and reach the highest pinnacles of what meditation can offer, you know, that practice needed to happen in total isolation. Like, you know, you could meditate in the world, but, you know, you're not going to really achieve anything unless you join a monastery or an ashram or something like that. Um, but then when I, when I came across his philosophy, which was you know, in this modern age, and he was saying this in the 60s, and it's a lot more prescient now, there's nowhere on earth where you could go where the world wouldn't eventually find you, hmm. where you could totally become absolutely insulated from the vibration of just the hectic and, 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 and chaos of day-to-day -day life in, in, in the world. And he said that in this day and age, you know, you have to try to bring that the inner life into the outer life that you had to to try in your own life to to transform yourself while living in the the helter skelter and 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 the, the chaos of life and you know case in point rather than establishing a spiritual community in maui or bali or malibu he started he he planted roots in Jamaica Hills, Queens, mm -hmm. um, which now is quite a nice little, quite a little, quite a nice little place. But in the '60s and '70s, the neighborhood that that he lived in was was extraordinarily urban. I mean, even today in New York City, the area is probably 95% minority. Uh, whereas if you go to Manhattan, it's 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 an absolute melting pot. Mm. So that that kind of like adventure of like you know, do, doing the doing what wasn't expected, doing what wasn't classical, what was 
new and risky um, in terms of spirituality really, really appealed to me. So I, I packed up and, you know, moved to um, a tiny little room in someone's house in New York City. <laughs> and I, I, I saw that there were more possibilities than what I was just being told had already been done. There was something incredibly new that I could be a part of. And, and were you already a runner at that point or was your kind of your devotion and your wanting to follow Sri Chimnoy's example, was, was that when you started running? So I, I was a runner in high school and, you know, everyone was a runner in high school, but Cal <laughs> yeah. California had 33 million people. And, you know, I was, I was, you know, competitive enough that I would, I would place at a lot of state level uh, competitions. And so, you know, like times that, that I ran and that, teammates of mine and I ran could have easily won many other like state competitions. But, you know, in California, you're running against future Olympians, no matter what, when you're at that level. So what I, I hated running is it's a clear, clear way to say it. Cause in, in that, in that environment, nobody really taught me how to enjoy anything other than winning. Hmm. And yeah, granted, you know, doing your personal best would be good, but that's not going to happen every race. And if you're not going to get a personal best or win every single race, then it's ultimately not an experience of satisfaction. So I, I came to New York and, and, you know, kind of was in this community of, of Sri Chinmoys where people were doing ultra distance races. And I moved in the winter of 1997 and in the summer of 1997, he started the 3,100 mile race, huh. but I came from an 800 meter one mile background and the idea of 3,100 miles was like, it gave me the same feeling as if I were standing in front of like uh, a hungry lion. I, mean, <laughs> I was petrified. Like I, I, it, I was like beside myself. Like I didn't want anything to do with it. Cause it's like, it just, it just blew my mind. And thankfully Sweet Chinway had a lot of other activities from the contemplative to the more service related things to, to occupy the rest of us. And, you know, although he passed in 2007, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that it wasn't until I started making this movie um, and seeing an echo of his philosophy uh, in all of these traditional cultures that I finally put one and one together. And I can say, you know, since 2015, 2016, when we started making the movie, and of course, in 2018, when we released it, I've really, for the first time in my life, begun to enjoy running. Wow, that's beautiful. I, I feel like your your experience parallels a lot of high school and even college runners in that they're doing it because, you know, they're competing against something, they're running against others or against themselves. And it's really just like pushing for that time. But um, they're not, you know, enjoying the nature around them, enjoying the, the, the physicality of their body hitting the ground and all of these things that we hear from throughout your film in some of the traditional cultures, uh, such if, if you don't mind my jumping forward, such as in the in the Navajo runner whom whom you interviewed and got some beautiful um, filming of, of his traditional running routes and traditional uh, run that they put on there. So I, I, I learned right away on my first run with Sean Martin, an ultra runner from the Navajo Nation, that he got more out of his daily runs than I would get out of running in a year. Hmm. You know, when, when I left, when I leave for my runs, I'm thinking about my workout. You know, in those days I would listen to music. I'm, you know, you're looking at your GPS watch, you know, stride by stride virtually. Yeah. But I, I noticed when he left his house, it was, it was clear that he was running from his heart and that he looked at that run as though, someone who has a contemplative practice of meditation or prayer or yoga even might take their daily routine. You know, you're not mm -hmm. necessarily going to have the best meditative experience every morning, but you've got to do it because it's like each time you do it, you're getting an experience of transformation. And hopefully that's taking you somewhere closer to uh, a deeper goal that you're seeking. Mm -hmm. And I could tell from his morning run that he looked at it as a spiritual experience and he was running in such a way that he would be open to whatever spiritual experience that particular day would give him. Hmm. His intent was totally different than mine. So, you know, most of us, when we run, we've got the, we, we run with the intent of, of training for a, a race in the future. Um, three, four, six, nine, twelve 12 months away where we've got the intent to try to do a certain number of miles in a certain time or a certain workout. 
we've got the intent to forget about problems in our life. Um, we've got the intent to transform the way we look. Hmm. And so, you know, running will give you all of those things. But I never realized that running, if you want it to, will give you the experience of transformation. It will allow you and actually do the work for you to totally change your life, your sensitivities to the world, uh, what you understand about yourself and your purpose in life. That comes through running. And I saw that in hindsight in Sri Chinmoy's own writings. Sri Chinmoy said that despite loving tennis and many other sports, he said running is the only sport that where you're connected via your breath to Mother Earth and to the heavens. And Sean Martin, our Navajo character, without knowing anything about Sri Chinmoy's philosophy, told me, and this is in the movie, he said, you know, when we run, our feet are praying to Mother Earth. We're breathing in Father Sky. We're asking them, we're asking the holy people, we're asking them for their blessings, and we're showing them that we're willing to work for those blessings. Hmm. And that comes through running. It's like, there's other ways to get there, but it's like, you know, through prayer or meditation, but running is that portal to all the worlds within and without. Mm, such a beautiful statement. Um, the Some of the time that I, I spent watching the film, I went back and watched it a few times now, um, I know that the, the run which you covered, I, I believe, was over 100 miles through his ancestral land, through the desert. Um, and you, I guess paralleling that, people often running say that when they're having a good run, they're experiencing connection with the place where they live, with their community. You know, it's a it's a communal experience or a, a connection experience with their land, uh, the place that they call home. And I I felt that so deeply when when he explained uh, his experience. Um, you know, obviously much deeper and much uh, more long term connection than what we might have with one of our communities. But but the idea still exists, and it, it's so clear in that and in, in his uh, his explaining why he runs. And, you know, the, the corollary to, to our lives who aren't able to, to, to run in gorgeous canyons, stay in and out. Um, Sean's father, a medicine man, told me, he, he said, hey, look, Mother Earth is under the sidewalk and under the asphalt as well. Hmm. At, at the same time, you know, I, I think this speaks to a deeper issue of, of, of humanity that, you know, there's so many problems in our relationship with, with the world, not because we're just disconnected from the food system or disconnected from, you know, sanctuary spaces around the world. But we don't necessarily comprehend that nature surrounds us at every moment. Like, what else is nature other than Mother Earth and Father Sky? Your feet are on the ground, you're breathing in air. No matter what setting you're in, whether it's a city or in a forest, you're in, you're in, in you're surrounded by nature. And, you know, running the way the Navajo do, you know, with an understanding that everywhere you are, you are on Mother Earth. Every time you breathe, you're breathing in Father Sky, creates a, a deeper sense of awareness, something that one would call consciousness um, when you're doing any action. But that becomes amplified when you have that intent while you're running. Hmm. Even beneath our paved roads and paved sidewalks, it's it's there, and there's a, there's also history and um, some good, some bad, but that we should be aware of, obviously, in, in all of our spaces. Um, th thanks. That, that, I had never thought of that um, that connection. Um, by the way, um, Sanjay, I know that we had spoken briefly off air that both of us have some connection to um, you know to following someone. Uh, uh, finding meditation in our lives and, and that making a, a big difference. Um, for mine, that was, you know, this, this guy, St. Francis, who was a long time ago. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him, but I, I joined the Franciscans and I worked with a Catholic worker house and um, found some of that connection with, with nature and community through my experience as, as a Franciscan novice. Um, and I find that a lot of shall we say, monastic communities or traditional um, cultures where there are monks um, somehow um, have this just deep sense of um, permanency or of time not being that important, but rather, you know, their experience with perhaps being in an ultra long distance event as a rite of passage 
or as just um, you know a way for them to connect with the divine, for example. Um, and I, I found a little bit of that in the third culture that you highlighted in what kind of people sometimes call marathon monks, but it, it's actually quite different than how I envisioned um, this community experiencing. I, I kind of experienced monks. I thought these monks would be running ultra marathons as a group together through there, but it, it, this is more, much more a rite of passage than it is uh, a sporting event um, that you cover. Yeah, you know, so the, 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 the first person to go from Japan to China to bring Buddhism back was a, a man named Saicho, a saint named Saicho, around 550 AD. And he was based outside the city of Kyoto on, on what was then now really Japan's holiest mountain, Mount Hiai. And he had the vision or the idea of, of a, a hardship or a quest or an austerity where an aspirant would walk um, on on a particularly particular route, a prescribed route from temple to temple to temple, um, and out of that developed this idea of a thousand day trek. And those thousand days, if people put their mathematics hat on, um, that thousand days is split up into ten hundred day cycles. Each cycle has a set uh, daily mileage, um, and the first cycle is about eleven and a half miles a day, with about 3,000 feet in combined altitude, walking around and up and down this mountain, going from site to site, praying. Mm. Um, but by the time they get to their eighth, ninth, and tenth cycle, they're at 35 to 55 miles per day. Now, what this means is that they're doing one or two cycles per year because they have to kind of complete the whole thing within seven or eight years. But the kicker is that they have to enter into this quest with the complete commitment to finishing it um, and not skirting rules, not skirting mileage. And in order to kind of enforce that initial commitment, you know, as you know from watching the film, if the, the aspirant fails to complete their daily mileage on any one single day, they are forced to take their life. Now, there, there hasn't been anybody that's taken their life in the last several hundred years, but, you know, they, they say that without that that kind of ultimate sacrifice, who knows, this practice might have become diminished. You know, if somebody popular or famous fell sick or twisted an ankle on day 500, maybe then somebody would have said, okay, we'll stop at day 500, or mm -hmm. we'll give you a mulligan, we'll give you one free day to heal up. But because they've never wavered on those regulations, you know, after 1,500 years now, it's still the exact same as when they started it. That's incredible. So it, it really, it's like a seven or eight year ultra event um, <laughs> um, for them to complete over that long a period of time. And and obviously the, as as you mentioned, the um, the rite of initiation or the rite of passage ultimately results. Would you say it results in them becoming a monk, or does it result in them as a monk achieving something transcendent in their in their opinion? Well, so, you know, when people want to join this particular monastery, of which there's, you know, anywhere from three to 4,000 people at any one time, they have to do 100 days um, uh, of, the, of, of, of this practice. And there, there's no penalty in those first 100 days of, of death, but if you don't complete those 100 days, you don't get to be a monk. Okay. A after that, people can choose various other practices, and, and one person at a time applies to do... Um, about one person at a time applies to do that seven or eight year thousand day trek. And so we were able to film the last aspirant in effectively his second to last cycle. Mm. Um, and, and I should say, but this isn't meant to pat myself on the back, but you know, what the Navajo had told me is that they'd never allowed anyone to film the spiritual aspect of their running. Um, the, the marathon monks hadn't allowed the access that we were given to anybody since the, the early 80s. Um, and there's, there's, a, that, there's a film from the early 80s still bouncing around YouTube, uh, but the monks themselves have said that there's a lot, there's a lot of discrepancies in that, in that film, although it is very interesting. Hmm. Um, and the Kalahari Bushmen, because their practice of persistence hunting is now a, a matter of dispute uh, in their relationship with their government, um, you know, they, ha they haven't and they probably won't be able to have anybody film their traditional hunting practices ever again. So the film hopefully offers people 
not just an unknown viewpoint, but an extraordinarily rare look into um, the way running is held sacred. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know if so. I'd be interested in hearing as as we as we wrap up towards the end of our talk, um, you know, how this connected for you all three of them together in terms of then coming back around to the 3100 race. Um, for me, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I got the sense that, you know, there's this calling that people have inside of them, you know, particularly among some endurance or some long distance runners, that's almost monastic in, in the devotion. Um, and I, you know, I've seen that side of, you know, monastic life, or at least of brothers uh, in the Franciscans, and I, I've also found my calling that's like, yeah, prayer and, and running and meditation can bring me into this place, even if I'm interacting with and part of the real world, so to speak, that I, I almost get that same experience that these, that these monks have because I'm placing myself into this, this much of a, a state. Would you say that some of the 3,100 runners would would say something similar um, of their experience or uh, when you talk to them afterwards, at least? I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, my, my initial impetus, and which is why also why the movie is really built around the 3100, was to give people a sense of how and why that race is even possible. Hmm. And I didn't want to do it through interviews with doctors and experts and former runners. I wanted to give people a feeling and not try to convince them but but to show them primarily visually um, rather than than just through information and so I, got, I, I wanted to show that running has been a cultural uh, essential for for humanity and there's a Navajo connection um, that you know running long distances um, is is literally built into who we are our DNA the connection with the Bushman and that running can be used as a vehicle to achieve a sense of enlightenment or a much vaster perspective of one's, one's place within the, 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 the universe, uh, physical and spiritual. And so we, in the film, as you know, we, we, we bounce from, from the 3100 thematically to other places around the world to kind of illustrate why certain things are happening in the 3100 or why things are, are going to happen. And, and to answer your question, you know, people come to do the 3,100-mile race because they know that after a week or so when the body's become used to the thousands of calories that it has to take a day, to the, to the, the gallons of water that it has to, to ingest, to the beating of the sun, to the pounding of the pavement, that the mind itself shuts off. Um, much like many people have, much like the experience many people have had while fasting, you know, mm. the first couple of days can be really rough, but then the body seems to kick into a different metabolic cycle, which we now know as ketosis, um, and uses energy stores that allows a relaxation of the GI tract. I see and I've heard and I've, I've observed and found that in long-distance running, something happens that way to the mind, where after a certain amount of time, if you're culturally conditioned like Shock Martin, that, that period might be 10 minutes, um, or if you're like us growing up in the West, you know, that might be two or three days of running. The mind shuts off and completely pulls itself out of the way between um, your heart and, and, and the universe. And from, it, it, it stops being a, a conscious impediment to you having a constant, you know, flow of spiritual experience. And so runners will say, like, there's no way they could complete that race if it was mind over matter. Hmm. If they had to gut their way through it and, like, fool their body and power their body and so on and so forth. Like, they can only do this, you know, 42, 45, 52 some odd day race if they enjoy it. And they enjoy it because they're able to access different parts of their, their being and different le levels of satisfaction while running that literally help them overcome any kind of physical um, suffering they might be experiencing. Yeah, that's that's amazing to me because I, I think that for myself and probably for most distance runners, um, you would ask them, did you enjoy the marathon when you ran it? They would probably say, no, I enjoyed the accomplishment or, you know, I enjoy this medal that I got, but that I didn't enjoy it. Whereas, 
you know, maybe, maybe some in the ultra running community, people running in places that they just feel really connected to, or that, like you said, push beyond that thinking, that thinking mind, then feel like, oh yeah, I enjoyed this experience. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing. I personally think what what was sad in my own running career that you know you you train for a race for days or weeks or, or months, and then you do that race, and it's just an experience of like, let me get through it, and let me hope that that there's a result at the end that will will satisfy me and create a, a sense of lasting satisfaction. Hmm. Whereas now I realize like. I can and should enjoy those day-to-day runs. I can and and should, you know, train to run for enjoyment. And you know, and, and in doing so, the races become much more enjoyable because it's 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 become a practice in those training days or in, the, in those just regular workouts that when when literally when 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 the the going gets tough, I I can't grunt through the the rest of the workout. I have to actually try to find a way to enjoy that exertion. Sure. Now, um, if you don't mind me going a little bit off topic, uh, I know that your your film career is not just this film, and you're also very connected to um, food and the the supply that it gives people spiritually and physically, um, which I think is also a big topic for a lot of a lot of runners um, out there, and I know that was part of Sri Chimnoy's philosophy um, as well. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, kind of what that's meant to you, and maybe what it means to some of the other runners uh, that you've encountered in the thirty-one hundred? Well, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I consider myself a student or even a, a disciple of, of, of Sri Chimnoy. Like I, I, I came to him for a, an understanding of things deeper than what my my mind could tell me and what I could get through a traditional outer education. And much like you sought refuge in, in, in the, the, the consciousness of, of St. Francis, you know, the relationship with an Indian spiritual teacher is the same way. You know, you, you come to that person with the ultimate hope that they, you know, whether in the physical or beyond, will take you to an ultimate goal of, of, of realization or enlightenment. And, you know, we find that that everyone who comes to do the 3100 mile race has that same type of goal in mind that they're really seekers and you know in the last few years at least the majority of the runners not all by any means but the majority of the runners you know are students of Sri Chinmoy and I, I think that number one they, they've overcome the fear that I used to have of the race um, which is common amongst those mere mortals like ourselves um, <laughs> And, you know, from the beginning, like the real like maniacs, you know, all, all the good ways would come and do the race. But now more and more normal people are coming. Hmm. Um, but that said, the majority of these normal people are, 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 are from our community who've experienced the race um, by being uh, crew members or handlers for other runners and have really realized that there's nothing to be frightened of. Um, at the same time, the people that have come from from professional running careers or more storied running careers aren't necessarily all quote unquote people of deep, deep faith, but they have had enough experiences um, in pushing their limits to understand that the only way they can accomplish a race like this is to tap into an energy that's not calorie based, that's not mind based either. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and am I correct that? Um, that most um, yourself and and most of these runners are are vegetarian and and uh, have found that as part of their way of life. Yeah, for for the most part, that that's correct. But we, we we've also seen, and I also see when people do multi day races that they only eat meat to kind of satiate their mind. Hmm. Like you know, the mind's got a craving, then you eat you eat meat because the in these races you want the the energy that you're you're intaking to be available as quickly as possible hmm. and you know the digestive uh process for for meat is just it can take literally it can take days so you're only taking meat for a momentary level of satisfaction but most people who do these races go like i need protein and i'm hmm. going to get that from some sort whether it's an animal-based protein like like from dairy i'm going to get that from something that's easily digestible and that's going to give me energy within the next few hours. 
and in the 3100 mile race that's much much more critical than in anything else because you you cannot allow yourself to bonk you cannot allow yourself to go beyond a certain threshold um unlike even 100 mile races where you can push the last you know eight nine ten hours and then just you know take the next three four weeks off you know you can't you can't win the 3100 in a day but you can lose it in a day and hmm. you have to stay within those bounds of, of discipline yeah that's that's really interesting i i asked for a personal uh in this whole interview by the way is because i personally really wanted to talk to you <laughs> but oh, uh very kind of you to say um very inspired and um you know just personally interested in you know the the welfare of the planet and what I put into my body and kind of what's called for as, as a runner and to encourage listeners or people that, that ask me, Hey, what do you eat? And, uh, I'm, I'm mostly a plant-based, uh, diet guy. Uh, but am, am always concerned about that. Uh, those things you mentioned about adequate protein intake and, you know, kind of keeping up with, uh, what my body needs, uh, as well as my spirit. So thanks. I mean, they, they, they say that each average human being, has about enough calories to run about 1100 or 1200 miles just in terms of our fat stores wow huh. so in, in in terms of running and I, I see it with 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 some of the top 3100 mile runners you know so much of the idea of like eating for performance is is overrated but not in the way that one might think okay um, sure and in, in ultra distance races, when your body is at an extraordinarily high level of metabolism, um, like in the 3100, you know, you it's, it's literally calories in, calories out, you know, your calories in, energy out. You, you just want to take something in that's easily digestible. You know, when they're taking 10,000 calories a day, you know, they're not looking to get, they can't get 20, 30% of that from protein. You know, you're, they're still only looking to get 100 or 200 grams or maybe 150 grams of their daily calorie load from protein, which is, you know, could be 600 calories out of 10,000. That's, that's 6%. It's, 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 it's nothing. Hmm. Um, at, at the same time, you know, a lot of the, the training requires you to be in states where, you know, you're not running on what you're eating because people have studied that in, in most high performance running or, or, or athletics, you're only digesting. 300 to 400 calories an hour. So if you take a three hour marathon, you know, you're, you're burning about 3000 calories and there's no way you could take that all in. Hmm. And they say that you can only store about 1300 calories or so in your muscles, uh, glycogen based reserves. So, so much about running is an, an ultra endurance events is about training the body to, to understand that there's, there's no such thing as running on empty. Hmm. You know, it's like you never run on empty. Your your body might not know how to tap into those resources, but that's what the that's what the training is for. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I I feel like everyone always says, "Oh, this is my wall," and then somehow they can push past it. Of course, there are exceptions uh, with things like heat stroke and you know being um, dehydrated and cases like that. Then obviously there is a wall and there's a limit, and people should be very aware of their especially their fluid intake and that that basic carbs that they need for for the running um so i thank you for for answering that that was that was really helpful um as we finish up uh sanjay i also wanted to briefly ask you um from other projects that that you're working on or things that um things that you have upcoming that are connected to running or not um that that you'd like to share well you know we we, we've both been denizens of of a at least me part time in a, in, a, in a small city in southern Florida, Immokalee. Yes. And like my, my first film was based on the the kind of vaunted labor organizing group, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, that small association of of tomato pickers that have really radical, radical, you know, revolutionized, I should say, um, you know, the way that large buyers at the top of agricultural supply chains, you know, treat their workers and ensure fair wages and fair conditions at the bottom of those supply chains. And you and I both know that like the underbelly of America has a lot of dark, dark secrets. And, and we, we see that in, in political rhetoric and how, and how people sidestep reality through bluster. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to make 3100 run and become is because, you know, from, from just our own life experience, how many things do we have as human beings that totally transcend barriers of language, ethnicity, culture, where you can go anywhere around the world and if you share this activity, you can make a lifelong friend and never even know a word of their language. Um, there's two things I can think of that are just that democratic and that human. Um, it's eating, like you can go have a great meal in any country, not speak the language, point at things, have a grand old time on both sides. Um, and number two, running. Hmm. You can go to almost any city and find a group that runs and you go and you run with them. You don't need to talk, but afterwards, you know, you're their sister, you're their brother. And it's those types of activities that, God, this country, this world needs to, number one, appreciate and value and, and needs to do more of. And so I've got this weird thread in my filmmaking career of either doing food films or sports films. <laughs> Yeah, and Food Chains is, by the way, for listeners, the one that's based in Immokalee and was done when I was there teaching and working with the community there. And I know it's it's true to what was happening there, and it's an amazing recognition of what those people go through and, and how our food is, uh, you know, chained, how it gets to us. So it's really, really great to be able to, um, you know, just to have you do both an eating film, uh, one making us think about food, and a running film making us think about our our daily practice of running. So um, I, I can't thank you enough, Sanjay, for your films and for your presence and, of course, for your continuing social justice work, which I, I think, you know, as, as you've said before, we're all called to do when we realize our connection to each other. Um, so thank you. Well, Mark, let, let me know when you're up in New York City. I, I don't make my, I don't, I don't find myself in, in Southern Florida nearly as much as I used to, but hoping that, that you have some time next time you're up in the city and we'll, we'll do some laps around the 3,100 mile course and we could pretend at least for those few minutes that we're the best in the world. <laughs> wow, I, I would love that, Sanjay. Thanks. I'll, I'll make it a point to be up there. I have a few good friends in Brooklyn uh, that I need to visit, so I, I look forward to that. Awesome. Well, I, I really, really appreciate your time and, and the opportunity. I'm grateful for that and I'll, I'll definitely reach back out. Thank you, Mark. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. What a great journey through cultures and time. Loved hearing about the films, which there'll be links to on our website, runninganthropologist.com. Definitely recommend you check them out. And until next time, also check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Send us a message if you have anything to share, anyone that inspires you. I hope today you found a few nuggets of wisdom, something to build hope and build up the running community, something to share with others, or just something to think about on your next long run. And until next time, I wish you happy running. <laughs>